0: Uh, I am delighted to introduce this morning the 2017 Kuiper Lectures uh, funded by a generous donor. Uh, the Kuiper Lectures provide opportunity for us to explore the work and legacy of Abraham Kuiper. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Kuiper was Dutch. Uh, my Dutch friends tell me that if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. Uh, Kuyper lived in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. He was a theologian, um, a politician, founded a political party, served as the prime minister of the Netherlands. Uh, he was a pastor, the founder of a newspaper, uh, the founder of the Free University of Amsterdam. Um, as a historical side note, uh, Kuyper launched his paper, De Standaard* on April 1st, 1872, 145 years ago, um, which is why we typically have our Kuiper lectures around the 1st of April every year. Uh, Kuyper had a profound influence on Reformed theology and practice. Uh, It would also be fair to say that he's had a profound influence here at Covenant College. Um, That influence can be felt in our core curriculum, in the way we approach our disciplines, in our faculty scholarship. In fact, Kuyper even merits a spot in our stained glass windows. Um, So you all know that the top panel up there in the gray coat is the great Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield, and in the blue coat is uh, Abraham Kuyper. That's Warfield welcoming Kuyper to Princeton Theological Seminary in 1898 to deliver the Stone Lectures, uh, which were later published as uh, Kuyper's Lectures on Calvinism, which laid out his understanding of the relationship of Christ to culture, um, a relationship that could be summed up uh, perhaps most succinctly in Kuyper's oft-quoted statement which I think will be familiar to you. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. Um, Or to put it in another way, uh, in all things Christ preeminent. Kuiper's not just a historical, uh, or a significant historical figure in the reformed tradition. Uh, His legacy and his influence continue to grow even today. Uh, Christians from a variety of traditions, especially evangelical, who are interested in the relationship between Christ and culture, who are interested in what it might look like uh, to purposefully engage a fallen world around them are increasingly finding Kuyper's perspective on this question a helpful framework uh, to guide them. So the Kuyper Lectures give us a chance to draw into the covenant community speakers who can provide us with a richer understanding of Kuyper's life and work and legacy, uh, both the good and the bad, and their implications for our efforts to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ today. So there will be three Kuiper Lectures over the course of the next two days, Uh, one this morning entitled God's Kingdom and Our Politics, one this afternoon at 4 p.m. in Sanderson 2.15, no admission, free of admission, free charge, Um, entitled Institutions and Piety on Earth, question mark, our Kuiperian challenge, Um, and then one tomorrow morning at 11, um, entitled here in the chapel, entitled All the More as You See the Day Approaching. Uh, Our 2017 Kuiper Lecturer is Dr. James Skillen. Uh, Jim Skillen is a graduate of Wheaton College. He also earned an MDiv from Westminster Theological Seminary. He studied philosophy at the Free University of Amsterdam and earned both an MA and a PhD in political science from Duke University. Uh, He taught at Messiah College, Gordon College, and Dort College before serving as the president of the Center for Public Justice in Washington, DC from 1981 to 2009. And for those who don't know, The Center for Public Justice is a think tank that explores questions of public policy and public justice from a distinctly Christian perspective, uh, equipping citizens to pursue God's good purposes for our political community. Uh, Skillen has written and contributed contributed essays to and edited uh, more than 30 books. Um, These include The Scattered Voice, Christians at Odd in the Public Square. This is my copy, which I read as an undergraduate in political philosophy here at Covenant College. Um, And most recently, uh, his most recent book is The Good of Politics, a biblical, historical, and contemporary introduction. Um, Skillen married his high school sweetheart. They have two children and four grandchildren. Um, He is a Colorado guy originally. I knew Colorado people would like that. Um, So he says that he likes our mountain views, and Jim, we're happy to share those mountain views with you. Uh, Would you all please give a warm Scots welcome to Dr. Jim Skillen.
1: Thank you, President Haverson, for that very warm introduction. Uh, it is a delight to be here. I love being able to look out at long vistas and see the mountains. I still miss the snow on the Rockies, but it's okay, it's beautiful here. <clears throat> I'm very delighted to be here, to be able to give these uh, talks, uh, uh, trying to express something of uh, the Kyperian spirit. Kuyper was a very great influence on me. I'm Scots-Irish in background. I have no Dutch blood, so I ain't much. Uh, But I uh, learned a lot from that tradition, still do, and uh, have contributed to some extent from it. You'll uh, see some of that come through in uh, the talks that I want to share with you. Uh, This morning, God's kingdom and our politics, I really want to engage you with the question of How do our earthly responsibilities, all of them, but I'm going to focus on the political, relate to God's kingdom? Christ claimed um, at the, just before giving the Great Commission, the foundation of that was all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Well, if all of it has been given to him, what's left for us? If you put it as a kind of, it's either there or it's here, we miss the gist of, what God created humans to be. Those who would govern the earth in service to him. Those who had real responsibilities in developing creation, bringing in new generations to the earth, uh, doing everything that humans would be doing with one another in order to bring out, to to nurture, to to make evident what it means to be the image of God. And to be the image of God, of course, is revelatory of God. Uh, I want to focus on the nature of responsibility in that context and the uh, biblical foundation I want to uh, lay or to remind you of, uh, God uh, establishes Israel uh, as his people with all kinds of responsibilities. In Deuteronomy there's a whole uh, set of passages from um, uh, starts about uh, the end of 16 chapter 16 Deuteronomy sections on what law courts are supposed to do uh, what the king is supposed to do before that what judges are supposed to do what the priests are to do <clears throat> the prophets and so forth. These were all different kinds of offices within Israel and they all had a role to convey something of God's rule over Israel But of course it was in this kind of mirroring, imaging way as the image of God to do that. Uh, I think the best way, the best story I know to get it uh, that you you may remember more than some of what I'm going to say to illustrate was the two brothers, uh, one of whom went into law, was in the city, city guy. The other one decided to become a farmer and he established farming out in the country. And he got in to visit his city brother more often. And the uh, city brother hadn't been out to see him for a while. He finally got him to come out and see his, his uh, estate. And he came out for a weekend. He showed him around, gave him the tour of the place. Uh, the city brother was very impressed. They sat down on the porch at the end of the afternoon. And he said, my goodness. He said, it's amazing what you and God have done with this place. He said, yeah, you know, you should have seen it when God had it by himself. Uh, It's no slur on God, it's a reflection of the relationship. So it's not the either or. Of course the guy couldn't be a farmer if there wasn't sunshine, if there wasn't soil, if there weren't plants, if there weren't animals. Uh, He didn't create all that. But it's in the stewarding of that and making it be a farm, which is the very meaning of tilling the earth and caring for the earth and gaining dominion, meaning how to bring out of it what's there. And we can think of that in relationship to animal husbandry. We can think of it of all kinds of things that were in this song um, that we sang, thinking of all the ways in which the trees and the planets praise God, but also the way in which the human beings are to be those who were also priests, kings and priests, who are, as priests, those who lift up the creation in praise through our own dealings. And of course, the most significant aspect of all of this is how we treat one another. Who are we as human beings? Well, we're people that become friends with each other. We marry. We have children, develop families. We develop farms and sometimes mostly today those are cooperatives and involve many many people that are engaged. We produce music singing songs, playing that uh, harp and pretty soon you've got symphony orchestras and choirs. We develop institutions like colleges where a whole community of people will be coming together and each in all kinds of different ways cooperating together to develop learning, to build on what's been done in the past and to go forward. That's our responsibility and it's done in relationship to God who gives us the gifts the air to breathe, the food to eat, to be able to continue to do that. The passage I'd like to read for you is in the section of Deuteronomy on the law of the king. Now, you may remember or have in mind, if you've heard it preached or spoken about in your home, that uh, God didn't want Israel to have a king. That was the argument with Samuel and the Israelites. Well, actually, it doesn't say God didn't want them to have a king, What he was frustrated about is that uh, Israel wanted a king failing to recognize that God was their sovereign. God was their king. And he objected to their falling away in faith and not recognizing him and not having recognized over all these years how Moses had been a leader of the people and had served in in a kingly role even though they had no king during those many years. What he wanted were people who would give themselves and all of their services and abilities and that included those who would have authority. Listen to this passage from Deuteronomy. When you enter the land, this is uh, Moses talking to the people before they go into the promised land. When you enter the land, the Lord your God has given you and have taken possession of it and settled in it and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses He must be from among your brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother, Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of the kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law, taken from that of the priests who are Levites. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his brothers, and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over the kingdom in Israel. Now, this is one of the most unusual passages about kingship at any time in the ancient Near East uh, of the time that Israel was there. Because the very thing that God is saying, don't do this, don't do this, that's what kings did. That's what it meant to be a king, to be the one with the most wealth, the most power, the most wives and the most connections with all the other nations, to have preeminence. God is saying, you should have a king, but this king should be a humble person closely connected with those he governs fellow israelites known for his humility not for the grandeur that he's accumulated to himself not for any pretense and the thing that will really keep him in the right position and humble is he reads this law every day and you know who he gets the law from the priests which reminds him he's not the only official in god's kingdom he's not the only one that calls the shots and does what he wants to do The priests have a role and before long as you'll know from the prophets the prophets have an even bigger role constantly calling the people to account and the kings for not having done what the king ought to do it's a picture of humility but the humility means governing in accord with the law in many ways uh, historians political theorists say this is uh, uh, the root in many ways of the whole idea of the rule of law no one should rule above the law Everyone should rule under the law so that those who are in political authority should be no different than those that are under in the sense of being subject to the law. So it's to remind us that governance is important. God doesn't say don't uh, choose a king. He says when you choose one, choose this kind of king, the kind I would have you have. And that goes on with these many other offices. It's an important role, and when you get to uh, the familiar passage in Romans 13, for example, where uh, Paul talks about uh, the governing authorities in the first part of, of Romans 13, you have to remember that that uh, passage itself uh, is part of one long passage from the beginning of 12 to the end of 13 on the meaning of love. How you're to submit yourself, how you're supposed to turn the other cheek, etc., etc., to serve those around you, and then. There's this important role that those that God chooses to be ministers. Ministers of government, that it talks about. These are high officials. These are people just like this king who are supposed to do it. And Paul writes that even in the context of the Roman Empire in which Israel and others are dealing with uh, emperors who are not like the king that Paul's talking about. But it's also the case that in Romans 13, we often talk and emphasize... uh, And these will not uh, uh, bear the sword in vain. That's the old King James. Uh, They have the sword of responsibility, that is the use of force, to punish evildoers. But that's not the only thing it says. The role of that authority is to encourage the good. There is a very positive, you could say, public administrative responsibility of government most of us don't pay too much attention to it, but you wouldn't have good sewage systems and roads and uh, all kinds of law courts and other things that do nothing about retribution, retributive justice. They have to do with organizing a community in a public legal way so that everything can function. It's a very, very high responsibility that at root is selfless. The people in public office should be nothing with the pub, do nothing with a public office that is self-serving. They are there to do justice for the sake of the well-being of the community. Now one of our difficulties uh, as Americans in the liberal tradition, and by that I mean uh, rooted in the thought of John Locke, we won't talk about it now, but everybody in the United States, from conserv- most conservative, most libertarian to most liberal, some would even call the most end of that socialist, are all liberals. In the sense that we see uh, political life beginning with sovereign individuals that's where it starts not with God whose first responsibility is their own prosperity and their own lives and when they finally get together to create a government is to protect their lives and properties. Government exists not for the sake of a public community which in the mind of Locke at that point doesn't exist. It exists to protect the life and properties of those who are engaging in economic means with one another. That is itself fundamentally in conflict with a kind of biblical view of, uh, so we have a lot of thinking, rethinking, critical thinking to do as Americans about how the, the claims about God and his blessing of America is related to the way we view government, which is often with a great deal of disrespect. But some of that thinking goes all the way back to Augustine, to whom Protestants are deeply indebted, who made the argument that had it not been for sin, government wouldn't exist. God gave government because of sin. So it's not original with us, nor is uh, economic uh, uh, private property original. These are institutions to try to get people who will be sinners uh, bordered in a bit to keep control. Uh, I think that's fundamentally a mistaken understanding of of the Bible, but it teaches us deeply. And the way it, it, it influences us deeply, and part of the reason it does, the way it does, is that we tend to think that it would be best we not have to have government. Government is something that we mostly are suspicious of unless we want it to do something we want for our benefit right now. We complain when the police aren't there in time. We complain when uh, whatever it is that we're looking for doesn't happen. But the whole idea of no new taxes, the whole idea of that all the, uh, those people that uh, govern, that are responsible under an executive to carry out the duties of a government, that uh, they're just wasting bureaucrats. It's a mistaken notion of what a public servant is. I have a good friend who, from Massachusetts who was there in government for a while and every time somebody called him a bureaucrat he said, I'm not a bureaucrat. I'm a public servant. That's the way we ought to call them and hold them to a high estate of carrying that out uh, with justice. But if you have that point of view, then politics uh, often means dirty politics. Bureaucrats, it's now a negative word. We, We use it with a kind of snide sneer. Now we all love the nation. We love America. But America is kind of an image of it's, it's a it's a mythical vision of freedom. It's a vision of what we all want the country to be, but we disconnect it from government. We're one of the most peculiar nations that loves uh, people who love the nation and have disregard of government. From a Christian point of view, it seems to me we need to go the other way. We need to bring down this kind of high civil religious nationalism a worship almost of nation, a high regard of the nation, to a proper patriotism. Nothing wrong with loving one's country. Nothing wrong with cheering for the U.S. at the Olympics or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with wanting the government to protect life and liberty through its governance. On the other hand, we need to elevate in a biblical way our view of the task of government. And even to see it as there from the beginning, God called, created, Adam and Eve created the human race to govern. Now there weren't, inst- uh, there weren't states, there weren't what we know as governments today in the Garden of Eden or soon thereafter, but then of course there weren't universities and colleges there either. There weren't farm co-ops and there weren't uh, uh, big corporations. But we usually have no trouble with seeing that the development from the beginnings of something, like David singing psalms, can eventually unfold to magnificent symphony orchestras and choruses. There's the development of all of these gifts and talents until human beings can together in many ways be demonstrating what it means to be God's servants. We had a uh, friend, a gal, who was a student at uh, Covenant Seminary some years ago, uh, came to work with us one summer at the Center for Public Justice, and she came because uh, Professor David Jones, who was at the seminary at the time, Uh, noticed her as a seminary student, uh, her giftedness with languages, her facility with understanding political life, uh, and she wanted to become a campus minister. And he got to know her. Well, it turned out that she grew up in a non-Christian family and both of her parents were diplomats, high diplomats, uh, in such important places as the ambassador to Pakistan and to Egypt and uh, to South American countries. She knew languages because she traveled with them and they eventually divorced. And that, that corrupted her life, it, it broke her. And when she became a Christian, she associated everything that she'd been part of with kind of a past that she wanted now to move away from uh, to be a Christian minister, working with students to help them get a vision. David Jones says, well, you know, I don't think you should give up so quickly on thinking about the role of diplomacy. And she was very, very negative about that. He said, go spend some time with people at the Center for Public Justice in Washington. And I had the privilege of working with her. Didn't try to talk her into anything, but kept asking the question. And came around to letting her see that there are many, many ways in which God calls us to service. He may not be calling you into diplomatic service, but you do have an understanding of political affairs. You know what uh, diplomacy is about. You know what it shouldn't be about. You know what life in in the diplomatic world can be. You have many of the gifts and languages. Why don't you consider it? So she was there, we talked about those things. Eventually she thought, well, she would at least try out for the civil service exam, foreign service exam, and of course, pass the flying colors, uh, and then was chosen. And she's since been in, uh, in the uh, Foreign Service in Israel, in Chile, in Afghanistan, and uh, in a few other places, she 's seen the difficulty of it. she 's seen many of the difficulties of being a public servant in the foreign arena, but it 's one in which she 's there. I cite that just to say that many are called to be teachers and preachers and pastors. Many are called to do all kinds of things, but whatever we do, it's to be of service to God. That's the great Kyperian theme. Uh, Our whole lives belong to God. The whole of Israel belonged to God. Not just when they were celebrating the Sabbath or worshiping God under the leadership of the Levites. They weren't just Sabbath people, they were seven day people before the face of God. What we need to be asking more as a community of Christians, a body of Christ, a household of faith is what it means to take the vast diversity of gifts and talents God has given us and the institutions that that entails and how do we act in such a way to offer those up as priestly offerings of thanksgiving and learn how to govern to manage to serve God in all of the other capacities including government and I would just say that we live in a time where the uh, the difficulties, uh, the challenge of political life in the United States and around the world today is exceedingly complex and I would say in many ways in the United States very debilitating. Civic life is, is not a happy experience, not just the divisions among people but the degrees of ignorance, the degrees of a lack of understanding of what civic responsibility is the inability of uh, members of Congress to achieve even some of those basic things after decades. Uh, these are built into, in part, the way the system functions, but they're also built in, in part, to the way we think about it. For many, many Christians, they can see a possibility of serving God and their families, maybe in teaching, especially at a Christian school or a Christian college, maybe in doing music and art. But politics? I think God is calling some of you to be a judge, to learn to weigh and do justice in a court. I think God probably has in mind that some of you have the talents in the study of law to become legislators, wise legislators, whether they're in a city council or state or at the federal level. And most of all, we need a community of citizens who will be doing as Kuiper himself was doing in in organizing and reorganizing the first really Christian Democratic Party in Europe, in the Netherlands, to ask how with a whole comprehensive agenda and he helped to write a very large uh, philosophy statement and a foundation of platform of principles and policy proposals that that party was going to propose. He himself was a prime minister of the Netherlands from 1901 to 1904. He served in many, many coalition cabinets with uh, others. Uh, that's not the, necessarily the greatest thing he did. And it's not even just to, to admire Abram Kuyper. But what I found most fruitful is the way he's challenging us, and I hope to challenge you to consider whatever your vocations are, and don't think of it just as the job that that will be your vocation. You have a vocation in your friendships. Marriage is a vocation. Family life is a vocation. The way you spend your money, the way you steward the gifts that you've been given, that's all part of the vocation God is calling you to, to be responsible for. And how can we be responsible together? One of the greatest needs we have now is for civic responsibility that will be deep and wide and enduring way past one election or another. It needs to become part of our way of life, marrying Having children is not just a project. It's not just something you do once every four years. It's a part of the way of life if you enter into it. If you become a teacher at a school, that's part of your way of life. It's not just something you do on the side. We need to see our civic lives as part of the calling that we have as the way of life of following Jesus and faithfulness so that we come to understand what it means for governing officials to be God's ministers the offices of accountability and responsibility that are held that way because we know we're accountable to a higher authority. I hope that in uh, these days of reflection, but in your work uh, through the semester and on into uh, the summer months, some of you will spend more time together talking about some of these things. I'm sure you already do. Where are you going to go to grad school? Are you going to go to further grad school? What are you you really most interested in studying? What are you going to do after you leave here? If you go on to further study, what are you going to do after that? I hope those are the things that you ordinarily talk about. They're crucial at this stage in your life, and it won't necessarily be the end of the road if you're thinking about these things. But do it in this spirit of asking how is it that God calls us to serve in all of these so that we see the Christian way of life as something that encompasses our whole way of life? Let's pray. Lord, we give thanks that you've made us, that you've created us with such an awesome position in your world. Put us above all creatures to be caretakers, developers in service to you, that we might even mirror something of your priestly and kingly governing ship over all things. And we thank you that despite and in face of our willful disobedience of your calling, of our turning away from the way of life that you've shown us, that you've given us, that you gave Israel, and that's passed down, has now been revealed to us in Jesus Christ, that despite our waywardness and our constant tendency to go in the wrong direction, that you've sent and called again and again for a return And that in Jesus Christ, we've been called Jew and Gentile together to be part of your body and to serve you. Teach us how to do that willingly, gladly, and with great joy. For all that we do, we know, is being gathered up in your hands in anticipation of the fulfillment of your kingdom. When the kings of the earth bring in all of their riches to your kingdom. When Jerusalem is fulfilled when Christ rules in the midst and we rule with him in the city in the new polity of Jerusalem let us come to see how our anticipation of the fulfillment of your kingdom in the resurrection life that Christ has for us that what we do now matters that what we do now is part of what we offer up to you in thanksgiving for that new life you've given us in Christ amen